Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today, we're going to talk with our guests about the indictment and arrest of former President Donald Trump. We have three guests joining us by Zoom today. Stephen Webster is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University Bloomington and Associate Director of the Indiana Political Analysis Workshop. Dr. Aaron Dussault is chair of the Political Science Department and Associate Professor of Political Science at IUPUI. And Joe Hoffman is with us. He's an author and a Harry Pratter Professor of Law Emeritus at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, you can reach us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter and send questions to at Noon Edition, or you can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. We were kind of laughing before the show about how we really don't want to use the word unprecedented too often today, even though this is another one of those issues that I could never have predicted we'd be doing a show on um, all these years we've been doing the show. So I, I want to start with... Uh, Joe Hoffman, who is uh, a legal scholar and a professor in the law school, to talk about you know the legal issues that that we're involved with. There's so much politics we're going to get to later in the show, but just if you could just set the stage for us on what these legal issues are that we're discussing today. Um, yes, um, sure. So you know, ex-president Donald Trump. Um, is currently um, being investigated um, in connection with with at least four separate potential um, criminal uh, proceedings, um, situations where he could potentially be charged with with crimes. And one of those has just resulted in um, these unprecedented uh, indictments um, for for crimes in the state of New York. So, um, you know, the four investigations are the one that we're going to talk about today, the, the New York indictments. Um, there's also a, a state law, criminal law investigation in Georgia in connection with uh, interference with the presidential election there in 2020. Uh, there's the investigation about uh, what happened on January 6th. That's a federal investigation. And um, there's also a federal investigation, a separate one uh, with, with a special prosecutor about um, the classified documents that were found afterwards, after after um, President Trump left office, um, that were found at Mar-a-Lago. So the New York uh, case is the first one uh, where we've got some action. Um, the uh, prosecutor in the New York case um, has um, gone to a grand jury, and the grand jury has voted uh, to indict Donald J. Trump for uh, as it turns out, 32 counts of uh, crimes under New York state uh, law. Uh, those crimes all relate to three um, uh, payoffs or, or series, uh, three series of payoffs that um, Trump and his campaign made. Uh, one set of payoffs to um, a stripper named Stormy Daniels, um, another one to a former Playboy model named Karen McDougal. And the third, uh, one count involving the doorman at Trump Tower, um, who also received payoffs um, because he knew some stuff about um, rumors that um, President or that that time candidate Trump had um, a child out of wedlock. Um, and so basically, um, the story of these indictments, uh, the story is that 
the Trump campaign in uh, the run-up to the 2016 election um, paid these people off to suppress damaging information. Now, that's not a crime. Um, it might be bad or immoral, but it's not a crime. Um, but it is a crime under New York state law to um, falsify business records to hide such payments. And that's what's being alleged here, that the Trump campaign and the Trump organization and Donald Trump himself uh, either personally or directed other people to falsify business records to hide these payments so that they wouldn't become public and um, hurt his chances in the 2016 election. That would be a misdemeanor under New York law, and it's doubtful that a prosecutor uh, like Prosecutor Bragg would go after an ex-president with uh, low-level misdemeanor crimes. But under New York law, those misdemeanors get bumped up to felony crimes if the falsification of business records is done to or in furtherance of some other crime. And uh, sorry, we weren't supposed to use the word unprecedented, but another, <laughs> not, another one of the unprecedented aspects of this case is that um, it appears, we don't know, it's a little opaque. The indictment lists the falsification crimes that, that Trump's been indicted for. The indictment does not actually specify what the other crimes were that the prosecutor thinks uh, Trump was furthering by falsifying these records. But the best guess is that uh, these falsifications were done in furtherance of a, of a federal crime, namely uh, interference with the presidential election. It's possible that the prosecutor might spin that or tweak that by saying that Trump and some other people, like his lawyer, Michael Cohen, conspired to, uh, to interfere with the election. That conspiracy, is a, that could be a state law crime, so maybe you don't have to cross over to the federal crime. Um, but in any event, there has to be some other crime at trial, the prosecutor is going to have to prove that these falsifications were done in furtherance of some other crime, which is what would then make these felony crimes. I hope that was simple enough. That Yeah, that was very good. Thank you. Um, I want to go to Aaron Dusso and just talk about the um, – ask you to talk about the political implications of this first, and then I'll go to, to Stephen Weber and give him an opportunity to do something similar. But the – you know, President – former President Trump is – right now seems to be the front runner to get the nomination again what kind will this what kind of impact do you see this arrest the indictment and the arrest having on his political campaigns and his political future well i, I would say that the political uh, aspects start with of course the primary versus the general election and drawing a distinction between those two two things is incredibly important uh, as a primary, of course, the uh, uh, former President Trump is trying to win a Republican nomination, and he's dealing essentially with other Republicans who have all shown that they are, tend to not want to cross him or or cross his supporters. And so, and then he's also trying to win voters who are already largely supportive of him. Thus, when it comes to the primary election, you know, the effect could be, you know, could seen as much, much different than if you're talking about the general election. General election is a whole different ball of wax where you're trying to win completely different votes, win people over who might not have already been uh, on your side, essentially. So, you know, in thinking about, uh, you know, the challenges for his campaign right now, it's one, you have to have a good answer. You have to have good talking points. But by and large, from my perspective, and there's others that disagree with this, but from my perspective, I think this helps helps him in a lot of ways because it continues to further the notion that essentially the establishment or the liberals or the Democrats or essentially the other out there are out to get him. That he has been, you know, as you know, a lot of uh, Republican voters have seen for for many, or uh, claimed anyway for many years, is they believe that he is standing up and saying what needs to be said, standing up for what they believe, and they believe that part of the problem is that an establishment out there is out to get them, and Donald Trump has played on that for a long time and been successful at playing up that. And so now, what do we have? We have a real world situation where it's clear to these individuals, not to everyone, but to supporters uh, of his in the, uh, you know, the rank and file perhaps and uh, voters that, you know, it's true. 
you know, they're picking on Donald Trump. They're picking on him. They're, you know, uh, you know, this uh, prosecutor is a Democrat and this uh, uh, the charges that are being laid here are not particularly strong. They should be a misdemeanor, but they're bumping them up to be a felony. Why? Because they're Democrats and just out to get Trump. So at least in the short term and in the in, in, in the primary, I see this as somewhat of a benefit in that way. It also takes away any focus on his primary challengers because right now we're having a conversation for an hour about donald trump we're not talking about nikki haley we're not talking about ron desantis we're not talking about anyone else might want to win that race we're talking about donald trump and so you can't win the race if no one knows you're even running doesn't it also uh make it very difficult for those two candidates to in a sense to go after trump as their opponent in the primary uh, because they don't want to risk losing his base uh, so oh, it's even it even I think makes it even more kind of tilting things in his favor. Oh, a- a- absolutely! It's such a minefield for if you're Nikki Haley, particularly Nikki Haley. Uh, she has uh, probably the lowest right now uh, kind of name recognition among Republicans nationally, uh, and so how is she going to make a name for herself? What? You can't make a name for yourself by attacking Trump right now. You you can make a name for yourself, but it's not the one you want to make because you're not going to win primary voters. And so you, you just don't know what to do other than what they're doing right now, which is largely trying to stay silent. Maybe there will be an opportunity later when this blows over that they'll be able to talk again, but we'll see. Stephen Webster, do you uh, agree with that assessment? Do you think this helps Trump and politically? I think Aaron is correct in saying that to the extent this helps Donald Trump, that help is limited to the Republican primary. Um, one thing that that we see happening is that Donald Trump supporters are quite angry about this indictment. They see it as an attack on him and by, an ex- by extension, an attack on themselves. Psychologically and politically speaking, one thing we know about anger is that it tends to bind people to their party and the candidates they support. And so in some sense, this anger is going to to make Trump supporters like him more. Now, what we know is that Trump has a, a small but very loyal segment of the population behind him. He might be losing more support in the context of a general election were he to actually win the Republican nomination. I would also agree with Aaron that, you know, it's it's certainly true that we're talking about Donald Trump. But I think a lot of people are still thinking about some of these other candidates. And I think the person in the uh, trickiest situation right now has to be Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. You know, he is very clearly the sort of Trump alternative who still has a Trump style of politics, both in terms of rhetoric and policy. And so trying to figure out how to navigate this situation for Ron DeSantis uh, is, is quite tricky. Right. You want to win Donald Trump supporters. Uh, and so that means, you know, sort of supporting Donald Trump or at least not publicly attacking him. But other Republicans are, are sort of surveying the landscape right now and watching what's going on. And so Ron DeSantis, I think, is in probably the most tricky political situation right now besides Donald Trump himself. We're talking about the arrest and indictment of former president. Donald Trump on Noon Edition today. If you have questions or comments, um, you can give us a call at 812. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I've lost my number again. This happens to me sometimes. Yeah, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. We're at Noon Edition on Twitter and news at indianapublicmedia.org. So, Lori? Yeah, I wanted to come back um, to the to to Joseph to you about the the charges. Um, uh, just to kind of clarify, I I thought I had seen something, read something, heard something that there was an implication that they were going to go after he he was um, falsifying these business records in order to um, evade paying taxes, which. Uh, uh, again, A, is that the case? And B, if so, is that, a, again, something that would fall under New York law? Or does it does it get elevated to being a federal uh, crime? Um, and the same question about election interference. Um, if he's convicted under New York law for election interference, what does that suggest about, since it's a presidential election? I'm, ju- I'm just confused about sort of who has jurisdiction here, I guess. Yeah, I would I would say a lot of people are confused. Uh, we hope the prosecutor isn't one of them. True. Um, 
But but it's hard to tell because, as I said before, the, the indictment is a little bit opaque about some of these matters. We know the specific crimes that are the subject of the indictment. It's all falsification of business records. That's that's the crime that's being charged. And that's a New York state crime. But again, they need it to be connected with some other crime in order for that to become a, a felony crime under New York law. Um, and there's no precedent for uh, no clear precedent anyway for using a federal crime as the way that you boost it from a misdemeanor to a felony, but it might work. Um, but the indictment doesn't tell us what the prosecutor's theory is about how this gets boosted from a misdemeanor to a felony. We're going to have to wait a while to, to hear from the prosecutor about that. It's certainly possible to um, that there might be some kind of, of federal tax implications, although um, it's hard for me, uh, you know, kind of on the spur of the moment to think of what that might be. These were payments, after all. It's not hiding uh, revenue. It's it's hiding a payment that you make to someone else. And I I feel fairly confident that that Trump wasn't trying to deduct these payments from his income tax or something like that, although that could that could be true. Um, I don't know for sure. Um, so, yes, is it possible that the related crime will be some kind of federal or even state? Uh, he was he was a New York um, was living in New York at the time. Uh, could it be either a federal or state tax crime that's related to these falsifications? Yes, that's possible. Um, but again, most experts looking at the indictment and looking at the facts that are laid out in the indictment. Right. There's a statement of facts in the indictment that are part of the charge. And looking at those, it looks like the direction the prosecutor is going is to link these falsified records to um, to uh, uh, violations of, of election law. And that would mm -hmm. be federal law. Um, and so that would raise the kind of issue of whether you can use federal crimes in this way. But if you look at it as a conspiracy to violate election law, that could be a state law crime. We just are going to have to wait and see what the prosecutor um, ultimately tells us about the theory they're going to pursue, um, assuming this case goes to trial. And of course, that's been tentatively scheduled for, um, I believe, January of 2024. The odds that this case goes to trial then or at any time before the election in the fall of 2024, I would say are very, very, very low. Um, we know that that Donald Trump is a master at running out the clock on legal proceedings. And there are lots of ways that this uh, trial could get delayed by motions and other sorts of, of pretrial litigation. Um, I think it's very unlikely we're going to see a trial of Donald Trump before the 2024 election. Stephen. Yeah, I think Joe's points about this being a confusing case actually helps Donald Trump politically. You know, Joe had mentioned at the outset that Trump is facing numerous threats uh, legally, right? He has the, the case in Georgia, two things being investigated by the Department of Justice. And I think if you were to talk to Americans, they would see, you know, the mishandling of classified documents or inciting an insurrection at the Capitol or trying to overturn an election result in a state as both more clear cut and more threatening than the the somewhat complicated nature of this case. And so I think Trump's campaign from a political standpoint, while they may not want to, to be facing an indictment on anything, if they had to pick one, it would, it would probably be this case. I, I think the others are more politically problematic for the former president. Yeah, um, I wanted to um, clarify one other thing, which we also were touching on before we went on the air, which is, should he be convicted and of this or, as you point out, several other cases that are uh, going forward, um, in terms of the timing, let's say he is nominated uh, and during the campaign next year, one or more of these cases goes to trial and he is convicted. What happens to his candidacy? And I, uh, I really think probably any of you could probably take it, but Aaron, maybe you want to give that a stab first. Well, what happens to his candidacy is that, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, he could continue to run for office. Uh, he can, you, you know, as uh, uh, convicted, uh, sitting in jail, you can still uh, win 
the presidency, you can become president. Uh, so that wouldn't stop anything, you know, along those lines. Now, would he, you know, so I think about, uh, you know, if public opinion moves severely against him, would you see a potential if it's early enough, if you're talking about, say, July, if it's early enough where theoretically the party could try and put pressure on him to step aside so that they could replace him on the ballot? Again, that, that you know, whether he could do that would depend on exact laws and dates, you know, at the state level. But, uh, you know, could they put that kind of pressure on him to do that? Um, you know, I, I, everything I've seen from Donald Trump suggests that he would not bow to pressure from uh, uh, the party, even if they had uh, the willingness to do it. So I would say that if you see a Donald Trump who wins the election, uh, the primary, and he's in the middle of the uh, you know general election, uh, and he's convicted and sentenced uh, to jail, he'll continue on as normal, and we'll be voting you know, in, in uh, November of 2024 for between one individual's in jail and one who's not. Joe? Yes, um, everything Aaron said exactly exactly correct. I'd, I'd just like to elaborate briefly on on the legal issues here um, involving a president or presidential candidate who's convicted of a crime. Um, once again, in, in many respects, this is totally unprecedented. But actually, we do have some precedent for uh, presidential candidates running for the presidency from um, from jail cells. Um, you know, a, a good old Hoosier by the name of Eugene V. Debs ran for president five times. And I believe on the, the fifth uh, occasion, he was, in fact, uh, sitting in a cell having been convicted of a crime. Um, he didn't come close to winning, of course. But um, but the thing is that the Constitution is the only thing. It's the only document that can establish the requirements to run for president or to serve as president. And the Constitution only says three things. It says you've got to be a certain age. It says you've got to have lived in the United States for a certain number of years before you can run. And um, um, it says you have to be a natural-born citizen. And that's it. And nobody, not Congress, not a state, not nobody, can add anything to that list. So as long as you meet those three requirements, which Trump does, um, you can run for president and you can be elected and you, you can become the president. Um, now, people say, well, what if he's actually convicted and he's in jail and then he gets elected? Um, surely he can't serve. And and although th that is an unprecedented situation, sorry, Bob, um, <laughs> it, it it is, in fact, um, pretty clearly understood by constitutional scholars that um, that can't prevent him from serving as president. If the people want to choose someone who has been convicted of a crime as their president, they can do that because the Constitution doesn't rule it out. And once they do make that choice, a state or the federal or other parts of the federal government as well can't prevent the people from getting their chosen uh, individual. Um, you know, there's been a longstanding rule in the U.S. Department of Justice that um, they won't even consider charging a sitting president with a crime because they understand that that would be interfering with that individual's performance of their constitutional duties. They have to be allowed to do their job. And um, and it's well understood that state prosecutors are subject to the same rule, so they can't charge a sitting president. But the same principle means they can't hold a sitting president in jail and prevent them from doing their job. I think it's pretty clear, although there's no precedent, that if Donald Trump wins the presidency, he gets out of jail for as long as it, as long as his term lasts. Um, now, of course, the day, if the Congress then impeaches him and he gets convicted at an impeachment trial and removed from office, then he goes back to jail or the or the criminal proceedings against him can continue. But you can't charge him. You can't put him on trial and you probably can't keep him in jail during the term, the constitutional term of his presidency, if the people choose him as their president. We've had a question come in that's a follow-up to that. Could he just pardon himself? Uh, that's an unprecedented <laughs> situation. Um, but actually, we do have uh, a fair amount of uh, you know commentary and legal thought that's gone into that question. Um, the pardon power, as stated in the Constitution, has no limits on it, at least none stated in the Constitution. There's simply a 
you know, pardon power that's given to the president. And the Supreme Court on more than one occasion has said things like this pardon power is virtually unlimited, blah, blah, blah. Um, that would make it sound like a president could even pardon himself. But um, the framers, and of course the Supreme Court, current Supreme Court really cares about this. They care about originalism and, and what the framers believed. The framers seem not to have thought that this was a power that could be used on yourself. The Federalist Papers um, actually say that the pardon power is the, is the power to pardon a fellow creature. That's the exact language in the Federalist Papers, suggesting that people like Madison and Hamilton, who were behind those words, uh, believed that you could only use the pardon power to pardon someone else. But that's a question that ultimately would have to be resolved. And of course, in our system, that means it would ultimately go to the Supreme Court for resolution. I have no doubt that Trump would try it. Um, you know, Nixon didn't have to do it because he was going to leave office anyway. And um, he, he knew or cut a deal, we don't know, with uh, Gerald Ford, his vice president, to, to exercise the pardon power. I think Trump would just go ahead and try it and, and wait and see what the courts would do with that. That would be interesting to see. But since, uh, as you described them, the, the framers believed one way and this court tends to side with them, although they also seem to, well, three are more appointed by Trump. Um, I want to give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Or you can send them to us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Lori? Um, thinking about how all this is playing out in the electorate, um, you know, we know that when Trump was, you know, way back, and now this is several weeks ago, was convinced he was going to be charged, and uh, the, that didn't come down for another week after that. And so he was, in the meantime, calling for his supporters to rally and uh, speak out and so forth and got a what appeared to be a pretty anemic response. Um, in fact, heard some commentators say, well, the people who are most likely to do that are all sitting in jail because they've been convicted of their roles in the insurrection on January 6th. Um, and uh, Stephen, I think you probably are a good person to take this uh, as a first round about what you're seeing with respect to the, um, the response by his supporters, just how angry are they? Yeah, there's quite a bit of anger among Donald Trump's supporters. You know, part of the fear, as you've mentioned, is that we might see something analogous to what we saw at the Capitol on January 6th. And I think fortunately, um, you know, there, there doesn't appear to be any signs of a, an imminent, you know, violent outbreak in this country, um, which I think, you know, normatively we would we would all celebrate. I think the, the real concern is that these events just further reinforce a view among a certain segment of the population, namely those who support Donald Trump, that the government itself is corrupt and that it, it can't be trusted. And so what this does is it doesn't lead people necessarily to political violence, but it does weaken Americans' commitment to some really important democratic norms and values. Things like trust in the government, things like seeing one's political opposition as legitimate rather than as a threat to the country's well-being. And so I do think that this indictment and, and Trump's spinning of it and his supporters' reaction to it has the distinct possibility to further divide what is already a, a very divided country. Yeah, I, and go ahead. Uh, I, I wanted to follow up on that with with Stephen because, you know, some of your work has been done on how voters form perceptions of political actors like candidates. And this, uh, you know, I, I'll use the word unprecedented. I think the support and the passion for for Trump and and a, any candidate who has this much, this many questions about their, I don't know, their ethical behavior, their legal behavior – this just seems so unusual. What's at the what's at the is is this distrust of government at the root of the uh, perceptions that he's the guy? 
I think a lot of things that we see in the Trump era are, are cyclical in nature. And what I mean by that is that distrust in the government and, and anger towards the government are both causes and consequences of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, was, was quite, quite strategic and quite smart at sort of appealing to the public's anger and distrust in the government. And one way he did that was by essentially giving people permission to be angry and be distrustful. And so in some ways, this is a, a vicious cycle of anger and negativity and distrust in the government. Because what he's done is he's he's created an opening saying, you should be angry about how things are going in this country. You should distrust your government. And he, he has said, right, I alone can fix it. So he's essentially created a problem or at least exacerbated an existing problem and presented himself as the sole solution to that problem. And so this does create a very intense form of loyalty among his supporters. At the same time, uh, just uh, I don't know whether you're actually seeing this if, in any data, if you're if you're looking at this, um, uh, which is the, the, the fact that, uh, in this case, the New York um, state prosecutor has gone after uh, Donald Trump is for some people who are perhaps not in Trump's camp, actually has increased their their confidence and their faith in our institutions because they actually see it working along the lines of no one is above the law. Um, are you seeing much uh, in terms of, of data on that? You know, this is sort of a, a partisan issue in this case. You know, people sure. will say, how, how is the public going to react to this? And if you're a Republican, particularly a, a Trump-supporting Republican, this is a witch hunt, to use his, his phrase, right? This is an overreach, you know, this is a form of political retribution. Whereas if you look at public opinion among Democrats or, or independents who lean towards the Democratic Party, you do see this as justice being done. It's, it's proof positive that our system works, that no one is above the law, even a former president. So in some ways, this does, again, sort of exacerbate Americans' views, not only politically, but towards our, our political systems and our governmental institutions. And yeah, sort of in both directions. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the other cases that are kind of dangling out there. Um, I think, Joseph, you were mentioning, obviously, Georgia, another state-based state, state -based case, and then the two federal cases about the documents in January 6th. Just what's your read on where those stand? Um, so we don't know, uh, because <laughs> prosecutors um, generally don't uh, go public with, um, you know, it's not like they give us a timeline or any kind of hint about when they're going to act. Um, we do know that um, all three of the other known investigations, criminal investigations, there are also some civil cases, um, but all three of the other criminal investigations, the one in Georgia about the interference there and the one about the January 6th um, riot, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, and the one about the documents at Mar-a-Lago, uh, we, we know that all three of these are, are proceeding apace. Um, we know that uh, the prosecutors, the Georgia prosecutor and the special federal prosecutor, um, are subpoenaing witnesses, um, they're obtaining documents, um, they're interviewing people. And so everything seems to be moving, um, you know, in the normal course. Um, but we have no idea when or even if any of those other investigations will ultimately lead to criminal charges being filed. I will say that, uh, and this is kind of going back to a point that was made earlier, um, it's absolutely true that the New York case, the one where we have indictments, is in many respects the weakest of the, the four known uh, criminal investigations. Um, that is very true. Um, and in many respects, it is kind of um, disappointing or sad that this case is the first one uh, to actually lead to uh, indictments, and it does give rise to the political uh, pushback. Um, on the other hand, um, somebody had to go first. And, and um, in many respects, you know, again, looking at this from the outside and with no insider knowledge about what the prosecutors are all doing, um, it kind of looked 
for the past months or so, like these prosecutors were all kind of looking at each other and saying, yeah, you go first. No, you go first. Um, and it may be that what's happened is that uh, Prosecutor Bragg in New York decided, ah, what the hell, I'm going to go first. And um, it may be that that's the cover, in a way, that's needed for possibly some of these other charges uh, to, to be filed. Now, no prosecutor is going to file a charge unless they think they've got the goods, unless they think they've got the evidence. And that's especially true when you're going after a former president and a hugely popular, at least in some circles, political figure. Um, but but I, I wouldn't be shocked if we see some action on the other, you know, on, on at least some of these other fronts now that kind of the ice has been broken and the precedent, the unprecedented thing has already mm -hmm. happened, right? Sort of takes the pressure off in a way for them to have, you know, done this <laughs> unprecedented thing by um, indicting a former president. Possi possibly. Indeed. Aaron, I know you had something that you uh, wanted to say before, but I have a, I'm going to also throw out another question to you, um, and that is how worried should we be about, you know, just Basically, the, the constitutional implications, our democracy, the idea that we're a, a government that's based on the rule of law, when we have uh, – it seems like there's a disconnect between the rule of law and some of the support for former President Trump. Well, I, I think uh, that there's very good reason to be very worried uh, at this point. Uh, we can just live blindly and assume the United States must always exist because it always has uh, in our lifetimes. But uh, that doesn't, it's not the case. Uh, the history shows that most, uh, most uh, countries uh, eventually do disappear. Um, so, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on that, but this actually brings up uh, this other point I want to make, that it can be dangerous to assume that Donald Trump's support is dwindling because his most recent attempts to try and rally people didn't, you know, fizzled out a little bit. The difference between now and, uh, you know, January 6th is that January 6th is the culmination, essentially the, the beacon, the last endpoint of a two-year campaign for president. And they had a, a very specific date. It even has a very specific time, and it has a very specific location to focus on. And once Donald Trump lost the presidency, you had the apparatus giving weeks and weeks and weeks of ginning up anger within his supporters, talking, you know, from Fox News, you know, at the most public way of doing it, to you know your random internet uh, uh, blog posts and/or uh, message boards, talking about this over and over and over again for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so it helped corral this energy into a very specific location at a very specific time and they were able to produce a very specific result which is quite dangerous for the you know the future of this country now his most recent attempts are you know were nebulous it's like where am i supposed to go when is this going to happen we don't even know if it's going to happen it was just a gut feeling right he was wrong and it was like a week later so it's just it's it's it, it even but it still produced some people out there there you know people did show up so you know if i'm trying to gauge his support uh, you know among the electorate that i would be wary of thinking, oh, well, this fizzled, therefore Donald Trump's uh, power to move people and anger them must be diminished. I think that I think that may be a huge mistake. All right. Well, I, I want to give the other two an opportunity to answer that question as well. Um, Joe, you know, you're all about the rule of law. Yeah, um, <laughs> that is for sure. And this has been this, this, this past Really, really going back um, almost to the beginning of, of the Trump presidency in 2016, this has been a period in which um, the rule of law has been um, severely challenged and tested and hasn't always um, passed the test, I would say. Um, you know, the framers never thought it could come to this. They created a system of government in which, in, in their system, the way they designed it originally, um, it was a group of, of you know, elite individuals, um, would have been all men back then, um, who would gather in a room um, and choose the most qualified, best person to be president. That's how they saw the Electoral College. And they wrote lots of things about how the Electoral College would make it certain that we would never be ruled by a crass or potentially corrupt individual, someone who um, you know had other than the best interests of the country um, in mind. Um, 
they just had no conception that um, we could end up in a situation where we would have a president who would be so blatantly testing and, and challenging all of these guardrails, all of these norms that um, we lived by for you know well over 200 years. Um, and yes, I think it's done serious damage to the rule of law. Um, you know, I talk to a lot of people. Um, you know, I do a lot of comparative work, and I talk to people in other countries, and you know, they're still stunned. They're still amazed at um, how much our system has been, um, in in many ways, um, cheapened by some of what's happened over the past, um, you know, five, six, seven years, and especially I think what happened on January sixth. You know, it was tragic for us, and it's it's tragic for the rest of the world too. They don't they don't like to think that um, that this kind of thing could happen in what previously would have. You know, a lot of people criticize the U.S. and other countries, but at the end of the day, they like to look to us as a, a model for what the rule of law should look like, and uh, that wasn't us on January sixth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Webster, I want to ask you about just the, you know, our. our Again, it's a broad question about the system of government, but there seem to be questions about the executive branch, the the legislative branch, and the judicial branch at this point. They don't – it doesn't seem to be the smooth operating checks and balances machine that we all have believed that uh, our government was. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think one of the things that's essential for our government to work the way that it was designed is that – People have to work together. You have to have some sort of bipartisan cooperation. But the reality is that American politics is not conducive to bipartisan cooperation. Increasingly, what we see is that members of the House of Representatives, for instance, come from districts that are reliably Democratic or reliably Republican. There are very few swing districts. And so what that means is most members of Congress hold on to their power by giving in to their most partisan impulses. That, of course, is anathema in many cases to bipartisan cooperation. What that tends to do, and one way that is is sort of played out, is by appealing to Americans' anger. And so I think, you know, Aaron had mentioned that Donald Trump can still elicit anger among his supporters, even though we're not seeing violence. And, and that is certainly true. And it sort of plays out in some of these less obvious ways, right? It, it sort of changes the incentive structure facing our elected officials. Increasingly, what we see is that Democrats and Republicans are not representing all of the constituents in their district or their state, but rather they're representing their co-partisans because those are the only votes they need to hold on to their office. And so we've seen a, a change in the representational style in American politics. And a lot of it has to do with this anger and animosity that exists among the mass public. If you have a question or a comment, please give us a call. 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can send them to Twitter at Noon Edition. You know, I, I have a comment since I've been, you know, in the, in the media for my whole career and, and I know, you know, we talked before about how, yes, we're talking about Donald Trump today. We're doing basically an hour radio program on Trump. So I guess I want to ask all three of you, are, are we part of the, uh, the problem that we're focused on a person who's no longer the president of the United States? He's been charged with crimes and we're focusing an hour on him rather than any other politician that's getting things done. Anybody that wants to answer that, I'm just throwing that out there. That's a concern from a media member. I mean, I, I am happy to answer. And I would say that how the media covers politics does play a role in, of course, how 
the general populace responds to it. And so the need or desire on the part of any journalist to get clicks or to get eyeballs can lead to the choice to focus on the salacious or, you know, when it comes to campaigns, we often talk about focusing on the horse race, right? Who's winning? It's a, it's a game that's happening. You know, who happens to be winning today in the polls rather than focusing on things which are going to get nearly as many people, you know, pay attention, which are things like that are really important, which would be say an issue. Like, so what's the implications if we, uh, you know, vote for somebody and they put uh, uh, people on the Supreme court and they're going to change, you know, uh, policy, you know, from the Supreme court, or if we elect a new uh, individual who clearly indicates they support certain policies. And so we just don't focus on that. And I can understand the, uh, the, the why we don't focus on so much on that because the need to uh, you know, essentially pay bills. And that means we need eyeballs, but you know, in the end, it does hurt us. Well, I, I have to say, I think we're part of the solution because we bring very smart people on to talk to us. But and one of those people, Joe, has his hand up. So, Joe. Well, yeah, I, I, I would also um, say, Bob, first of all, no offense intended, but, you know, we're not moving the needle very much by our one hour program today. I don't think I don't think we're going to have a major impact on on the problem that you raise. But but my answer really is yes and no. I mean, um, you know, right now, Donald Trump is a declared candidate for president in all of the polls. He's by far the leading candidate in the Republican Party. And um, when that person gets charged with a crime, um, it's news. And, you know, that would be true under any circumstances. So it's not so much, I think, what's happening now that's the problem in terms of media attention. This is deserving of media attention. What I would be more um, kind of regretful about is the way that for the past seven years or more, going back even before the 2016 election, you know, every tweet um, by um, Donald J. Trump um, has been magnified um, in the media. Um, you know, I'm sure Joe Biden says a thousand things a day, but none of that ever shows up, you know, uh, online or in the media. And and part of that is because he, he doesn't go out of his way to make those things public. Um, but but it's, it's, it's the overall dominance of uh, Trump in our media um, for, for now probably a decade. Um, that is probably the thing we ought to be um, regretful about. Yeah, I this we we don't have a lot of time left, and I I don't want to open a whole other can of worms, but I but we do have another. There's another court case out there that's affecting at least one player in the media, which is the Dominion Voting Systems case against Fox. That this is you know probably a crystal ball question, but do you what's your sense of where that case is for for one and how quickly? There might be a resolution to it, and again, might be difficult to to say, but it does seem to be um, to be moving along. And and do you think that's going to have any kind of dampening effect on the degree to which Fox um, is, frankly, uh, and I'll I'll be a little partisan here, I, but I think it's a fair statement to say the propaganda arm of the Republican Republican Party. Um, I'll, I'll speak very quickly only to the, the, the first part of the question about the case. Um, it's a strong case. I think every legal observer I know believes that this is one of the stronger cases of defamation that, that you're ever going to see. And so I think there's a good chance, a really good chance. I mean, defamation cases are hard, but I think there's a really good chance that Dominion wins this against Fox. Um, the case hasn't gone to trial yet. All we we're still mired in the pre-trial stages. So again, um, the likelihood that this case will play out, uh, let's say, before the 2024 election, is probably rather small. Mm. Stephen, you know, people don't really like using the word propaganda, but it's interesting because there's some recent work in political science that suggests that how Fox News operates and how it is so persuasive and convincing for Republicans is its ability to operate much like state-run media does. And so it's not the case that Fox News is presenting one side of a story and CNN or MSNBC is presenting another. 
but rather it's it's Fox News is presenting certain stories and withholding other stories. And so it's presenting a, a certain worldview rather than a, a sort of different take on a, a common question. And so I think in some ways that that word actually sort of describes the mechanism through which Fox News is so powerful for so many people in this country. Aaron, just we've got about two minutes to go, but I want to give you a, a shot at this question. It's a you know, it's kind of an a show ender, but what are you going to be looking for next? What's what's the most interesting issue to you that you're waiting to see how it's resolved and what's going to happen next? I'm fascinated to find out uh, when we might actually see a trial. You know, so if if uh, Donald Trump is on trial during, you know, if it actually does happen where he's on trial in January of 2024 versus if that's delayed post-election, I mean, that's to me is the single most important question because if he's not going to be on trial prior to uh, uh, November 2024, then ultimately I don't think much of this matters. All right. Joe Hoffman, 30 seconds. Well, I would say that um, I, you know, although there are tons of legal implications um, to what's going on right now, um, many of which we've talked about, um, I'm actually more interested on the political side. I, I'd love to hear my um, colleagues' thoughts about you know if you're if you're someone like Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or even a Mike Pence, at some point you have to get Trump out of the way or you can't become president. You have to. You know, this might have been seen uh, as a, a golden opportunity, you know, the first time um, a candidate or an ex-president is charged with a crime, and yet it doesn't seem to be having that effect. I'd be interested to know why and, you know, what's the game plan? What's What will be the basis for getting him out of the way? Stephen Webster, you can answer that question or you can just offer your own thoughts in the last 30 seconds we have. Yeah, I mean, this is this whole thing is is political, whether we like it or not. There's a, a recent poll that came out that says about three quarters of Americans view this indictment as political. And crucially, that's about 93 percent of Republicans. And so I think because Republicans are viewing this as a political exercise, Trump's 2024 rivals are waiting for the right moment to strike. And as I mentioned earlier, I think many campaigns are probably viewing these other three potential charges that might be coming his way as more advantageous for them from a political point of view. Thank you to Stephen Webster, Aaron Dussault, and Joseph Hoffman for being our guest today. For Laurie McRobbie, my co-host, for producer Nathan Moore and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thank you for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org and from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.